Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 23rd, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, August 21st are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,196, that's 15196. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,197, that's 15197. This morning, A Vision for You presents a message of death and weight. The long form of the fifth tradition states that each AA group ought to be a spiritual entity having but one primary purpose, that of carrying its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. What is a spiritual entity anyway? Merriam-Webster defines this as an independent, separate, or self-contained existence relating to or affecting the spirit. This means that every OA group, every Overeaters Anonymous group, can be that spiritual entity that carries its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. The question now becomes, what is the message that we are to carry? The big book clearly states that this message should have depth and weight and that an ex-problem drinker, for us, of course, compulsive overeater, who has found this solution, who is properly armed with the facts about himself, can generally win the confidence of another compulsive overeater. The message, therefore, is our experience, strength, and hope. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. The goal of this program is a spiritual awakening that will change our lives, that will produce a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating and allow us to be happy, joyous, and free. This is a message of depth and weight. Joining us today to share her message of depth and weight is Catherine S., a recovered compulsive overeater from Virginia. Catherine has been dedicated to our 12-step way of life, trudging both the highs and the lows, and it's a privilege and an honor to welcome Catherine to the line this morning. Good morning, Catherine. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Leah. I always love your mm-hmm. introductions. <laughs> um, my name you. is Kath- Thank you. My name is Catherine S., and I'm a very, very grateful, recovered, compulsive eater and bulimic from Virginia. 
Um, and I just wanted to start by saying the third step prayer and inviting you all to say it with me um, from your homes. God, I want to offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. So I titled um, this presentation today, A Message of Depth and Weight. And um, in the doctor's opinion of the big book on page XXBIII, it says, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. And I just always love that line in the um, talking about depth and weight to hold our interest. So, my goal here today is to share the message of depth and weight and how it's been made real in my life, um, the profound difference it's made. And the journey is really different for everyone in program, but the message of the program and the solution that's offered in the big book um, is the same, no matter the differences in our journeys. Um, and so sort of, in a nutshell, for me, what, what is that message? And I'm going to go into this. But just overall, it's, it's been about the steps and the traditions and the tools. It's been about service and learning what a wonderful purpose that is for me on this earth is to be of service. It's been a lot about humility, um, learning who I really am and where I fit into the scheme of things, not better or worse. Um, it's been about taking responsibility for my actions and my life and my wrongs um, and my own happiness, really. It's been about learning to ask for help, which can be hard, but I so desperately need. And it's been about giving help, um, which is such a blessing in this program. It, it feels so good to give help. And then I think one last thing, it's been about imperfection and learning to accept imperfection. And I think that's been part of the, the humility. Um, and this message of depth and weight, it's kept me abstinent and really completely neutral around food since July 12th of 1990. Um, and during that time, I've had no string bean slips. And more importantly, I haven't even had the desire or the temptation to overeat. Um, and this has been true through two pregnancies, two healthy pregnancies, through marriage, both getting married and staying married, which both have its challenges. Um, the death of, of two grandparents, it's carried me through the loss of a job that I loved. Um, through the very, very sudden death of my mother, through having two teenage daughters, which is what I have right now, um, and through the recent death of my mother-in-law from COVID-19. So going through that. Um, so it has carried me and kept me 
engaged. It says it must have depth and weight, interested and engaged, and really neutral around the food, um, which to me is just miraculous. Um, so I'm going to talk about what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. Um, and in terms of what it was like, I I don't think I was born a compulsive eater. When I was a child, I, I don't have a lot of memories of constantly overeating. And in fact, I have one memory. Um, I grew up, my dad started the religion department at a at a boarding school. So we lived on campus at the school and we ate all our meals in the main dining hall. And um, I have one memory of overeating a food one night that was carb, carby and sugar, you know, carbs and sugar. And I ate too much of it and I felt sick, but then I didn't want to eat it again. Like it, it was more like a normal reaction. Then I didn't next time, you know, next anytime they served it after that, I was like, yuck. Um, but I think my compulsive eating started, it, it, I don't think, I know it started um, in seventh grade. And it was a year that the schools where I lived were not very good. And um, they're just, yeah, they weren't very good. So I, we made the decision that I would go and live with my grandparents who lived an hour away and go to a, a much better school. So I did that and I would live with my grandparents during the week. And then I would go home on weekends and I'm a middle child, and two, two things happened that year. One, my brother and sister got very close, my older brother and younger sister, and my younger sister just started idolizing my brother, and I felt really left out. Um, and I was gone during the week and would come home on the weekends. And because I wasn't in school, um, with my classmates in the town where I lived, I really didn't have friends or much to do on weekends, and I felt really lonely. So that was going on, and at the same time, um, when I lived with my grandparents, right across the yard was were my cousins, my female cousins, who I adored and just loved spending time with them. But one of them was older than me, and she was dieting, and she got me into dieting. Um, and that's when I started dieting and being aware of food and weight. And I was pretty much pre-adolescent. So I had a pre-adolescent body and she sort of, um, I don't know, not idolized, but she, she was like, wow, you're so thin. And really it was just, I was a normal non normal kid that hadn't gone through adolescence. So she got me dieting and I would, I would do really well during the week with my, when I lived with my grandparents, I was really happy there. And then um, I would go home on the weekends and I would go straight to the refrigerator. And that's, that's really when my compulsive eating started. That was also the year um, that I did start, I, I started menstruating and, and developing and becoming, you know, not just a little kid anymore. And I think that scared me. So all of that combined, I started compulsively eating. And um, that was in seventh grade. I returned, I returned to my family home. Um, and I, after a year with my grandparents, 
Um, I loved the school that I had gone to, but my grandfather had raised three daughters and I was starting to grow up and he didn't want to be responsible for raising another teenage girl. Um, and I, I wasn't a bad kid or anything like that. I was a pretty normal adolescent. But um, so we, we made the decision that I would go back home and because the schools really weren't very good, I skipped a grade. So I skipped eighth grade and I started ninth grade. And I was already young for my class. So I started ninth grade. When I started, I was 12 years old. And I turned 13. Um, but I started young. And um, it was just a difficult experience. Everyone was older than me. I made it onto the varsity soccer team which was great, but I never played, so I didn't feel very good about that. And my weight started to creep up that year, um, not terribly, but a little bit. And I started binging for the first time and would, would binge on, on food. And I hung out with another, um, with a handful of girls who they would go to one of the girls' house and just Binge on food together, and it, it shocked me, but I got right in there and, and loved it. Um, and I slowly gained weight in high school, and then <laughs> it was a lot of jumping around. Then the next year, I ended up going away to a school in New Hampshire for three years, and it was a really good school with a really good education. And my brother went there as well, and um, and I. I don't at all feel like my parents wanted me out of the house. I feel like I had a really, really loving childhood, loving parents. My dad is a retired Episcopal clergyman um, and, you know, was a, a wonderful father. They were imperfect parents, absolutely. And um, I'll talk about that. But um, the decisions about going away to school were really based on the education and the lack of it where I lived, as well as, my dad had been from a broken home and he had gone away to this school and it had sort of given him a whole new way of life. So anyway, I went away to boarding school and, um, you know, looking back, like I now that I have teenage daughters would not want to send my children to boarding school because I would miss them so much as a mother. But anyway, I went up there and there was unlimited food um, open to me. You know, we went to meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it was all you can eat. Um, so I went and I ate and I just, you know, food just became, you know, my coping mechanism. And I gained weight and I didn't have a boyfriend. And I became obsessed. So for the rest of my high school, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I never had a boyfriend. I was overweight. I remember in the cafeteria, um, I was just so ashamed of my weight and of my body. And I remember going up um, to like the salad bar to get more food and tying a sweatshirt around my body so no one could see how large I was in the back. And I, and I wasn't terribly overweight, but it started creeping up um, and at my highest, I ended up being 40 pounds overweight. And so most of high school, I was about 30 pounds overweight and um, just uh, obsessed with it. And all my journals were, I'm going to lose this many pounds by this date. Um, 
anyway, I really believed that if I lost weight, I'd have a boyfriend. And if I had a boyfriend, that life would be perfect. And um, I, I really believed that, that it was all related to weight and a boyfriend. And that would fix me and fill me and make everything perfect. And I really in, enjoyed um, boarding school, but I also felt far away from home. And I think starting, I don't know when it started, but I just always felt a little different um, and not sure that I fit in. And that's just a, sort of been a, a theme. Um, so then I went off to college and I got my first boyfriend and I lost a little bit of weight. Um, and he made some comment about how I could stand to lose more weight. And that's when my bulimia really got into full force. And actually, let me back back. The first time I purged was in high school, and I did it for two weeks, and then I stopped. And I have no re idea how I just stopped, but I did it. And I do remember that my very, the very first time I purged, um, I was leaning <laughs> over the toilet thinking, I hate my mom. And I I had a hard relationship with my mom, and that's been such a gift of the program, which I'll talk about later on. But just that was my first purge, was hating my mom and getting the release out by, by purging. Um, so back to college, my bulimia picked back up and just went out of control, where it started out as a way to control my weight, but then it became just a total way of life. It's like what I would do all day. Um, and I was seen in my college on a video stealing food from a cafeteria. They, the cafeteria um, noticed that they were losing money, so they started watching their, their video camera and saw that it was me, and I could have gotten kicked out of school. Um, and my resident assistant stepped in and said, I think she has an eating disorder. Um, and I was confronted about that. I would go through the halls of the dorms at college and eat out of the empty boxes that were in the halls, eat other people's leftover, you know, foods that from that was in boxes, and do that in the fraternities. Um, I would go to such lengths also to hide my bulimia and my purging, and I had I had so much shame about the fact that I was bulimic and I, I really thought it was the worst thing that you could be worse than, you know, really worse than being like in robbing a house or then murdering someone was just being a bulimic was the most shameful thing. Um, so there was a lot of secrecy and a lot of trying to, to hide it. Um, I did get into a support group during college for um, people with eating disorders and we were off. And um, we were led by a psychiatrist who was severely overweight. So we basically shared our sickness, but there was there was no recovery, no health. Um, so that gave me a little a little bit of comfort, but it it didn't help me get well. Um, my senior year of high school, I um, I mean of college, things got so bad with the, the bulimia and just the loneliness that I felt. And that's been, again, a big theme, just this, this loneliness. Um, and I had lived with some women friends in a house, and I, I moved out of that house and back onto campus. And um, 
just was really lonely. And I woke up one morning and I didn't want to live the way I was living anymore, which was, you know, binging and purging and hiding. And, um, and so by the grace of God, my parents were on a six month sabbatical that was in a town 10 minutes from where my college was. Normally where they lived was, was five hours away. And so I called them that morning and I said, I, you know, I I don't want to die, but I don't want to live this way anymore. And, um, and I told them about my bulimia and that's one point where I feel like I see that I've seen the grace of God throughout my life and my recovery journey. And that's one time where there was real grace that my mom and dad happened to be so close by that, you know, the day that I woke up not wanting to live. Um, So they came over and we got me to see a therapist. And, you know, um, that's when I got into the support group. And I had wanted, I thought about dropping out of college. They really encouraged me not to. And so I made it through college. Um, And um, one thing about, about that is that I cheated in college, and that's part of my amends. Um, I did really well in college, and I worked really hard, but I also cheated. And um, and that's something that I had to go back and make amends for. Um, but I made it through college, so we thought, okay, let's just get through college. And then I graduated, and I went out um, to the Grand Tetons in Wyoming, and I worked. And I worked as a, a waitress in Grand Teton National Park, and um, I worked in this restaurant that had a, the whole wall was this beautiful, it was glass, and you could just overlook the mountains and you could see the sunset. And it was this, you know, idyllic place. And there I was, a restaurant, uh, uh, um, a waitress, and I could not stop putting food in my mouth at that, at that restaurant. I would eat off my customers' plates, um, I, I gained weight. There was um, one day where a busboy said to me, Catherine, so-and-so and I were talking, and, you know, you always have something in your mouth. You always have something in your mouth, and it was true. I always had food or ice or, or something, and that was just so embarrassing. And um, I would regularly – we had dessert carts that we would roll around and people would order from, and I would regularly at the end of – my shift or during the shift steal desserts from the dessert cart. Um, and so uh, just one example of where my disease took me um, was one, one night the, or one day, the baker who was responsible for all the baked goods and the desserts and the dessert cart, he told me that um, he would like to, he would like me to meet him after the shift. He wanted to talk to me. And I just knew for sure that he must know I'm stealing from the dessert cart and um, he was going to bust me. And um, so I agreed to meet him. I met him after the shift outside in the dark, outside of the place where we worked. And he asked me to have an affair with him. And um, and I, I said no. He had a girlfriend who was a good friend of mine who I really liked. And I, you know, I said, no, absolutely not. Um, 
But the next summer, and I wasn't working there then, he raped a waitress. And I just think, you know, that could have been me. And I put myself in that situation because I was so afraid of being caught stealing about my stealing of desserts. Um, and I just feel like my my food obsession, you know, that be, that was just paramount. And um, it, it didn't matter what might happen. I, I would try to get the food. Um, so I went home after that, um, that summer working from the Tetons, and I went back to my parents' house. And we lived in a small town in Virginia. And this is, this brings me to, to finding OA. Um, and I, I came home, I had gone to a really good high school, a really good college. I had, you know, degrees, but I was living at home with my parents. I didn't have a job. I, I, I got a waitress job. I didn't have a job. I didn't really have friends my age and I was just so lonely. Um, so incredibly lonely. And, and, and just, I felt like a loser, you know, what am I doing with my life? I'm this young person living with my parents. I was sort of afraid of people my age. Anyway, um, so this is when I, when I did find OA and the doctor's opinion on page XXX, it says much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. And I want to say I definitely felt doomed. Um, I couldn't stop eating more than anything in the world. I wanted to stop, but I couldn't. And every morning I would wake up, I won't, I won't, I won't. You know, I won't overeat. And then I would. And all day the great debate would be, will I or won't I? Will I or won't I overeat? Um, and I always did. <laughs> So just the hopelessness I felt, the loneliness, and then the shame, both about my weight and about being bulimic. Um, so, so what happened? Um, well, first, um, I want to talk about why, why could I not stop eating? Like, I, I felt that something was so deeply wrong with me. And, you know, what was it? What is wrong with me? And I now know... Um, what was wrong with me? And so just going over what the big book says, um, again, in the doctor's opinion on page XXX, it talks about the allergy. Um, and it says, they cannot start drinking without developing the phenomena of craving. This phenomena, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief is entire abstinence. So I have um, a body where I have a craving if I eat certain kinds of food. And I now know that I have an allergy. And not everyone has that allergy, but I do. And so my body reacts in a certain way to certain foods and that will never change that there's no cure for that i have that allergy um but also i have an obsession of the mind and on page 23 
it talks about, it says, quote, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, this main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. There is obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. So I have an obsession of the mind, and what that obsession tells me is that somehow, someday, I will beat the game. And I interpret that to mean somehow, someday, I can eat and stop. I can overeat and stop. Somehow, someday, I can do that. Um, and it's not true. It's I cannot do that because of my allergy. So that obsession tells me I can do that, and yet it's physically impossible because I have this allergy. So that's what's wrong with me. That's what was going on. And then the third part of what what was wrong with me um, is has to do with being restless, irritable, and discontent. And again, in the doctor's opinion on XXIX, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. They are restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So I start eating because I don't like being restless, irritable, and discontent. I want comfort and ease. That's why I start eating. I'm uncomfortable with restlessness, irritability, and, and lack of contentment. So I start eating, and then I keep eating because this craving develops, which I have no control over, and so then I eat to overcome it. And so that would happen over and over and over again. And it was just um, a vicious cycle. And it was something that I could not stop on my own. Um, It was impossible. And so what does the big book say I need? Um, Because there is a solution. And that's the the hope. That's That's what this entire big book is offering to us is the solution to this incredibly complicated, unsolvable problem. Um, And what it says is I need a total psychic change. So on page XXIX, it says, after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomena of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is little hope of recovery. And then it goes on to say, strange as this may seem to those who don't understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. And I have to say that became true for me in terms of being easily able to control my desire for extra food. I do not fight the food. I am not tempted by the food. And that is completely grace. 
that is another spot where I see grace in my life. Um, I could not, I could not have made that happen. God had to, God had had to lift that that desire, that that temptation, that obsession. And that's one reason that I am so afraid to ever pick the food up again is because I know I didn't make it happen, that I put it down. I know that was complete grace. And so I don't know if that grace would come again. Um, so I, I, I never want to um, pick up that first bite and even tempt that. So, so what happened? I came to OA um, a woman that I lived with in college, her sister was bulimic, and she knew I was bulimic. I, I would have been mortified if I knew that she knew I was bulimic, but she did. And she passed an article around the house, um, and it mentioned Overeaters Anonymous. And she shared that her sister was an Overeaters Anonymous. So I got desperate enough that I called her um, and told her I had an eating disorder and got her sister's phone number. And her sister agreed to meet me at an OA meeting. Um, and that was in the fall of 1988. And that first meeting, I lived in this small town called Leesburg, Virginia, and it was about an hour from Washington, D.C. And um, the, the woman, the roommate's sister, went to meetings in D.C. So she agreed to meet me and take me to my first meeting. So I drove into Washington, D.C., and I had no idea how to get around Washington, D.C., so I um, was very late to that first meeting. I got there for maybe the last 10 minutes, so I didn't really hear what the program was. But what I did get was a where and when of all the OA meetings in the area. And that where and when became my Bible. Um, and I followed it and just went to lots of meetings. And the next meeting I went to was a newcomer's meeting. And they explained how in Overeaters Anonymous, it's, a, it's threefold. It's physical, it's a physical and emotional disease with a spiritual solution. And it just, I felt like I had found the right answer. And I had tried so many different diets. And um, I had also worked for a diet center. I was one of the workers there and I would weigh people in and and I would go on my lunch hour and go binge and purge, you know, and then come back and act like I knew what I was doing. But so I I tried so many things um, and this really felt right, the idea that this is physical, emotional and spiritual. So I just, I knew that OA was the right answer. It felt right to me. Um, so I started going to OA meetings and I got a lot of, because I had been so lonely, I loved going to meetings. That was like my social outlet. And, um, and I started having some community and some friendships at, at, at the meeting so that it provided me with, with that. So some emotional support and some relief from the loneliness. And it also started getting me in touch with a higher power. And I grew up the daughter of an Episcopal priest, I mentioned, but I, I never really understood what any of that religion meant to me. And it wasn't until I found program um, that I started to have an understanding of what it meant 
to have a relationship with a higher power. And I really learned that through program and through the emphasis on, you know, having a higher power, believing in a higher power, turning my life over to higher power, and being in constant contact with a higher power. So I I got some some good spiritual help and emotional help, um, but I could not get and stay abstinent. Um, so I was still in OA, going to meetings. I bought the the books, but I didn't really read them. And I didn't work the steps. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know what that meant. I, I basically went to meetings, and I did get a sponsor, but I never called her. Um, and so I, I didn't get abstinent, and I was still eating. And it, I think there's a saying, something about it's so hard to have a stomach full of food and a head full of OA. And that was, that was true because OA basically ruined my binges because I knew now, you know, what the problem was and that there was a solution. But here I was, I, I didn't know how to get abstinent. And that said, this feeling that I had that I was the worst one. So I, I, I thought I was the worst case in OA, and I was the only one who wasn't going to get it. Um, and I tried, you know, lots of different things. And Really, by the time I had entered OA, I didn't even care about my weight. I was about 40, I was 40 pounds overweight. Um, and for me, bulimia did not keep the weight off. Um, I was bulimic and I was still overweight. Um, and I just wanted freedom from the crazy, the crazy in my head. Um, I didn't care about the weight. So what happened is about a year and a half um, into my time in OA, I met a sponsor, an OA sponsor, who she worked a really strong OA program, and she had a lot of structure in her program. And I asked her if she would be my sponsor. And she said, sure, um, I'd, I'd love to be your sponsor. And she was like, I want you to buy the big book and the 12 and 12, and we're going to read it and do an assignment in it each day. Um, I, um, what I do, what she said she did was weigh and measure her food. She wanted me to, to spend 90 days working on the foundation of the steps, of, of steps one, two, and three. She wanted me to call her every day. Um, so she really wanted me to have some structure around my program. And um, when she told me that she wanted me to do all that, I was like, no, that's that's crazy. I can't do that. And um, one thing she had also suggested is that she had an allergy to wheat and that maybe I did too. And I just thought that was ridiculous and crazy. Well, two weeks later, I had been binging and purging all day. Um, and I got a phone call from another person in OA who said, you know, I'm going to really give this a go, and I'd, I'd like to swim instead of sink, and I'd love if you would do it with me. So how about coming over to my house and we try this thing? And um, I called that same sponsor, and I said, are you still available? Um, I'm really willing to give this a try now. And um, that was at like 4 p.m., on whatever day, and I had been binging and purging all day, and 
the woman said, sure, I would love to sponsor you. I just want you to buy the big book, and we're going to go through the literature, and we're going to work the steps, and you're going to call me every day, and um, you're going to weigh and measure your food, and you're going to have some structure. And I said, okay. And that was July 11th of 1990. And um, that day was the day that I surrendered. That was my... um, complete and total surrender and it was my step three and again that is a point where it was God's grace that led to that I I don't know I had been praying for months you know show me God how do I do step three how do I surrender what do I surrender to you know I have to eat what is what does it mean to surrender and um and I was shown I was shown that day Um, someone out of the blue called me and invited me to their house. And I went to their house and this sponsor was still available. And what she said was, um, you know, eat, eat your dinner. And I can't remember how we figured out what I was supposed to eat for dinner. But more importantly, she gave me an assignment in the big book. And she had me read the doctor's opinion in the big book. And she had me write about it and write about my history and call her the next morning and that was the beginning of my real transformation um, through Overeaters Anonymous. Um, and never would I have thought I'm going to get I'm going to get abstinent after I binge and purge for the day. It's always I'm going to get abstinent tomorrow. I'm going to give up the food tomorrow. I'm going to give it up Monday. I'm going to start the diet. You know, at the end of the weekend. It was never oh, I'll start it right now. But that's what happened. And again, it was it was just God's grace. And um, I feel emotional when I think about the surrender because, again, that wasn't me. I, I didn't make that happen. Somehow that was a gift. Um, and I was just totally ready to say, okay, I will do whatever it says to do. I'm not going to pick and choose anymore what parts of the program I follow and what parts I don't. Um, And I know it says take what you like and leave the rest, but underneath that, I I, I just knew I wasn't going to take what I like and leave the rest anymore. I was going to follow the program as it's written. So um, for me... And it said, you know, for the psychic change, all we need to do is follow a few simple rules. And so for me, to eliminate my craving, what I have had to do is I've had to eliminate certain foods. And and everyone's different with what they have to do with food. There's no one right way, one right food plan. But I've had to eliminate certain foods um, with certain ingredients that, that stimulate my craving. And I also have found um, through the years that if I look forward to a food too much, I probably need to give it up. So I've had to give up a few foods because of that. And then I also weigh and measure my food. Um, And I got a food plan from a nutritionist, from a qualified professional, not from another compulsive eater. So a compulsive eater didn't give me my food plan. Um, I got one from a sponsor, and I do weigh and measure my food. And for me, that's what keeps my mental obsession in check. And it 
it can seem really restrictive, but for me, it's totally freeing knowing, you know, I, I basically look at my food plan as a prescription, like a prescription drug. I follow it exactly. So I know what I'm going to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And again, this is absolutely not for everyone. Everyone in OA has a different journey and there's the important part is that we work the steps. It's not what food plan we have. This is what has worked for me to eliminate my craving and my mental obsession. And then what about the psychic change? Um, So for me, following a few simple rules, that has meant the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. And the 12 steps have really been my guidelines for individual living Um, who I am as a person, um, how I work on myself as a person, how I allow God to work on me as a person. And then the traditions have been so helpful for communal living. So first it's showing me how to act in the group. Um, And then it shows me how to act in the other groups in my life, like in my family, like at my workplace, like as a member of my church, Um, and then the psychic change also is guided by the, the tools. So I do use the tools um, faithfully in order to work the steps. And so I would say by, you know, using the tools, the steps, the traditions, the psychic change for me, it, it hasn't been a, a, a burning bush where suddenly I'm happy, joyous, and free. The psychic change really is just that I don't have to eat compulsively today. I can live life on life's terms today without compulsively eating. And that's pretty amazing. That is, that's my spiritual awakening. It's not that I saw a, a divine light or a burning bush. It's really just, wow, I do not have to compulsively eat today. I, I can go through the day without picking up extra food. Um, And the other big part of my total psychic change is the whole idea of service. And program just really taught me that my whole reason for being on this earth is to be of service. That's my purpose. That's my primary purpose. And I now um, approach, you know, every area of my life with the idea of, well, how can I be useful? Um, whether again, it's whether it's my church, whether it's my kids' schools, whether it's my workplace, um, what can I offer versus what can I get? How can I be of service? And that's also I found the best way to feel part of something and part of a group is to give service. Um, and I remember the first meeting, OA meeting, where I gave service. I set up the chairs, and I ended up feeling more a part of the group. Um, so service in the end really is, I mean, in a way it's selfish. It, it helps us feel better about ourselves and there's nothing that feels better than being able to help someone else who is in the horrible hellish nightmare of the food to be able to find their way out. Um, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about, so what does it mean to me to, you know, to work this program in my life today. And page 59, the big book, tells us half a measures availed us nothing. Um, And so for me, I I really don't do half measures with this program. I, I I really do it 
full force and I love it. Um, so on a, on a daily basis, well, my first, my first 90 days with this sponsor who offered more structure was spent deeply steeped in the big book and the AA, the 12 steps and 12 traditions of AA and the big book, focusing on the first three steps, um, steps one, two, and three, just focusing on it in all different ways, learning about I have this allergy, I have this mental obsession, I you know need this psychic change, how I'm completely powerless. Um, I am never going to beat, what is it, what is the, hold on, let me look at my notes, um, beat the count or whatever. I'm never going to be able to eat food and stop the food that I'm allergic to. So it was just really deeply getting into those first three steps and what they meant. Um, and I love the doctor's opinion. I love this part of the big book. And I'm so, I'm looking at my big book right now. I'm just so thankful. Um, I'm so thankful like to Dr. Silkworth and to the people that, that wrote this book and that, that made this solution possible. Um, so I, I spent, you know, those 90 days really steeped in the first three steps. And then I did a really, really thorough fifth step, just exactly like it's written in the big book. I wrote the columns. I did it chronologically um, from my earliest memories of resentments that I could remember um, and even resentments that I thought I might have in the womb. Um, So I did a really, really thorough fourth step and I filled five notebooks of material um and I, I i gave over my fifth step and it took multiple get-togethers with my sponsor and i remember you know we i i love that woman to today she's not my sponsor today but i love her and we always joke that she's going to get into heaven early because she had to listen to my fifth my fifth step because there was just so much stuff um and i remember at the end of giving away my fifth step, and, and really throughout our meetings, she kept saying to me, Catherine, this, this is just stuff. Everyone has stuff. It's just stuff. We all have it. And she normalized my stuff. She normalized my secrets. She normalized, you know, the things I had never told anyone, the things I was so ashamed of the things that I thought made me, you know, a bad person, a defective person. And she was like, no, you know, nothing I haven't heard before. We're, we're all, we all have it. We all have our story. And now I know that. It's like, um, and that's, that's part of my psychic change is like, I'm just a human being. We're all human beings. We, we're all imperfect. And God bless our, God bless us. God bless our dear hearts. Like, there's not anything wrong with me. There's not anything wrong with you. Um, we're just human beings trying to to live on this earth. Um, and so that was that was transformational for me, I guess, to help me realize I'm not defective. Um, and it says in the, not the big book, but it talks in the 12 and 12 after the fifth step about how we really start to feel sort of a part of life after the fifth step. And I didn't feel this huge change after my fifth step. It wasn't like, again, something, some big light or something huge. But I I now look back and see that I think the process of telling 
someone else what I had done and her accepting it was just a big turning point for me feeling okay as a person and I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be perfect. So that was step five. Um, And these were just my first step fours and fives and sixes and sevens. And I've had many, many since then. But um, then I spent time in steps six and seven. And I just spent time there reading and writing and praying and meditating. And I love these two steps. And I love them because I feel like this is where I acknowledge I can't do it. And this is an area where God can do it and only God can do it. So I I don't have to make it happen. In fact, I can't make it happen. I, I need to be willing. And sometimes I have to pray for the willingness to be willing. Um, but God's the one who has to remove these defects of character. And that's, that, again, is a humbling realization. And it's a humbling acceptance that I can't make even myself change. Um, so that's step six and seven. And then I did a really thorough step eight. Um, and again, I did that chronologically of my, of my wrongs. And I had a lot of, um, stealing involved in my story, stealing of food, stealing of money to buy food. Um, I also went through a stage when I was in the food where I would steal clothing from people, um, and in fact, in fact, one summer when I was still heavily in the food, I worked at an Episcopalian conference center with all these other people. And we lived, the, the girls, women, we lived together in a dorm. And um, over the summer, clothing started disappearing. People started noticing that they couldn't find their clothes, you know, pieces, items of clothing. And we had a big meeting as a staff, like, what's going on? You know, someone's taking these things. And um, and it was me. And I, I didn't get caught. I was putting the clothing in, in my suitcase to take home with me. And it's because I, I had such, I felt so bad about me and my body that I thought these clothing items would make me better. Well, I had to, I mean, I had to make amends for that kind of thing. Um, and I went and made full amends um, for that. And this was before the internet. And it was, so I still had to track people down. I had to do a lot of footwork to track people down from college, from high school, um, from like that workplace, other workplaces. But I did my amends. Um, and most of them, many of them, I guess, maybe. I don't know most, but many were letters that I wrote, and then many were in person. If I could do it in person, I would do it. I would do it that way. And it actually, um, it actually took me ten years in as an abstinent, recovered member of OA to finish all my amends. There were there were that that many for me, um, but I just worked on them faithfully you know, one at a time. Um, and so the promises come after step nine. It says before we are halfway through. And I don't think that, I think the promises for me probably started at the beginning of my step nine or, you know, I don't think it took 10 years for me to experience any of the promises of, of OA. But I will say um, 
one, it, it just felt so good to do the ninth step. And I got such, I, I did not have any response, any ugly or mean responses from people. Um, they, they either didn't respond at all or they were kind. And I got some really funny responses. Um, there was one boyfriend who I had been really rotten to and his response was like, oh, I'd totally forgotten about that. I have to. So he wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't the center of, of his attention. But anyway, so I did all those. And um, during this, this time, I, um, I, I did not date at all for my first year when, of, of being in full recovery. I just followed that guideline. I just focused on me and my recovery and my, my work. Um, and I'm really glad I did that. Um, so I, I didn't date. And I'll talk about in a minute how what I, I did do. But um, I, I was dating by the time I finished my 10th step. And the person who is now my husband proposed to me after going with me to make my last ninth step amend. He went with me in person to drive out to Leesburg where I had worked at a restaurant and had stolen a lot of food and I, you know, uh, made amends with the owner. And um, I always laugh, you know, that one of the promises is not that you're going to, that I'm, you're going to get a proposal, a marriage proposal, but that's what happened in my experience is that it came after I finished my very last ninth step. Um, So um, steps 10 Step 10, you know, I learned um, to take on-the-spot inventories, and it's really, I don't, I don't find it most of the time difficult to say, this was my part, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to try to do better. And I think it's really important, if I'm going to make amends, that it be a living amends, you know, that I, I actually back it up with trying to change my behavior, not just the words that I'm sorry um, but I, I learned to do that. That is such a, a part of our daily life in, in my household. Um, and I make mistakes every day as a mother. Um, and I have, you know, I have le- learned and role modeled for my children that I can say, I'm sorry, you're right, I made a mistake. Um, and then Step 11, I started, you know, working on step 11, having conscious contact with God. And I really follow pages 84 in the big book for step 10. Um, so I do on-the-spot step 10s and, and turnarounds where if something is really bothering me during the day, I can call someone about it or write about it and then talk to my sponsor the next day about it. Um, and I follow what it says to do in step four um, on page 84 of the big book. And it just says, we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So I have learned when something crops up, I look and see where am I being selfish, dishonest, resentful, or afraid. 
I ask God to remove that. I discuss it with someone, and I I can't always do it immediately. Just as a mother and sometimes at work, I, I can't necessarily always do it immediately. But I, what I do do, something I've started doing um, recently in my program is having a daily partner, 10, 11-step partner, where each night I go through a review, and I, I, and I do that following um, step 11 on pages 86 and 87, where I review the day, um, and if there's any resentments left over, I look at my part, where have I been selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, or afraid, I take an inventory, and then I answer these different questions on page 86. It says, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? So I inventory that. Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves, which we should should be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving to all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves, or were we thinking of what we could pack into the stream of life? Um, and then after making the review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So I now do that on a daily basis and um, have a partner that I turn that over to. So I am actively, very actively incorporating, you know, steps 10 and 11 into my life. And um, for step 11, again, on pages 86 and 87, so it talks, that's the evening review part of step 11. There's also the part of step 11 um, where upon awakening, we make conscious contact with God and ask God to direct our thinking. Um, So that's part of my step 11. And then throughout the day, step 11 says, throughout the day, we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought or decision. We relax and take it easy and we don't struggle. Um, So that's how I incorporate step 11 through the day is by continuing to make conscious contact with God. And by no means do I do this perfectly, and I, I forget all the time, but this is, this is generally how I'm trying to live, live my life. Um, and then step 12, um, working with others daily. Um, so I, I have sponsees that I talk to every day. I have sponsors that I talk to every day. I, I do my reading and writing every day, and I, I reach out and speak um, with at least three other people every day in program. And I try to make sure, um, you know, as much as possible that that is newcomers. So as well as people that I can get help from, it's who can I help? You know, how can, how can I spread this beautiful, beautiful message of recovery? Um, and on page 85, it says, we are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual conditions. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. So this is where it tells us we have to be in fit spiritual condition um, if we want that daily reprieve. And I would say all together, you know, working 
these steps, the daily, the daily one, two, and three, and ten, eleven, and twelve, are what keep me in fit spiritual condition. And then the thorough and hard work, I think, of steps four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, um, that I did, and that I do when big problems seem to to come up, helps helps to set that foundation that if I do these other things daily, I can stay in fit spiritual condition. Um, and so now I, I guess I want to talk a little bit about um, what it's like now and the reality um, because it is not perfect and it is not, um, it has not been an easy journey for me. I have to say um, there have been many gifts of the program, and, and I want to tell you a few of them, and then I also want to tell you about some of the struggles um, and the gifts. You know, I've been a normal weight for 30 years. I can't believe that. That's that's miraculous, and and to to not have to worry about what I'm going to weigh. Um, I have a group of friends in the fellowship that was such a gift, and that that started early in OA. For someone who was just so desperately lonely to have a fellowship of people that that I live life with, that I, I get to share my life with and I get to witness their life um, is just such a rich and deep gift. Um, and I had some of the outward accomplishments. I got a full scholarship to graduate school. School. And definitely that was because of this program and me being disciplined enough to study for my graduate exams. And I did well in graduate school. Again, the discipline of this program helped me do that. I've had a career that I love, that I feel like I have purpose and meaning. Um, I have two children, and um, I have been able to work part-time throughout the time that I've had them, which has been really great for me. Um, I don't know how people stay home full time. I, I have, I find parenting <laughs> really difficult. And so I've been grateful that I could work as well as, as stay at home. And I think that helped me be the best at, I could at both. So I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to do that. So I'm married now almost 20 years and I have two healthy children. Um, I'm a respected member of my community, both I'd say my church community, my neighborhood community, my work community. I have the peace of mind that comes from cleaning up all my lying, my cheating, my stealing. A huge gift of recovery has been alleviation of some of the shame and self-hate. And I can't say that that's completely gone. There are still times, absolutely, where I still feel shame or I feel like, what is wrong with me? Um, and I can, you know, get into that. But overall, that deep, deep feeling of shame and self-hatred has been alleviated. Um, one of the biggest gifts of the program has been a relationship, a healed relationship with my mother. And I mentioned um my parents were very loving. My mom, she was just so, she was very, very loving. She also had a really difficult time expressing when she was angry. And so what she would do is she would withdraw and go inside and 
sort of shut off communication. And growing up as a child, that was really difficult. And it, it was it was like living with an alcoholic, having a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I never knew if I was going to get the really loving, nurturing mom or the one who was totally shut off. And that that was very hard for me. And we just had a rocky relationship. And um, it was through, and, and when I first got into program, I wanted to talk things out with her like program, you know, you kind of talk things out. And she didn't want to do that. That's, she was an introvert. She And she was a very spiritual woman. But talking things out was not, she was not comfortable with it. Well, I finally came to realize through my ninth step amends that the amend I owed her was not accepting my mom for who she was. Um, and because I was focused on this one aspect of her that was so difficult where she would shut down and not communicate. I had not accepted and loved and appreciated the incredible gifts that my mother was and offered me. And um, so I made that amend. And that was, you know, in my first 10 years of recovery. And so we went on to have 20 more incredible years um, of a beautiful relationship. And um and I'm just so grateful. And my mom, she died very suddenly two years ago, which which was hard. Um, but I I don't have any regrets. This program enabled me to to heal my relationship with my mom, and I just I love her, and I'm so thankful for her and for the relationship that we ended up having. So that was a huge gift. And then just the gift of going to bed abstinent and waking up abstinent. Nothing feels better than that. Um, Yeah, going to bed and waking up abstinent. And I wanted to talk about those gifts because I also want to say my reality is that it has not been all happy, joyous, and free. And marriage has been really hard for me. Um, And I always say I have the perfect husband, and he is perfect. He's the perfect husband for to teach me how to work through what I need to work through. Um, so uh, my buttons are pushed by my husband and by my children. Um, parenting has also not been been easy for me, and they've both they both have had difficult moments and moments that have me on my knees. And I I work the program to the best of my ability, um, and I apply the steps like I talked about. I have had to spend a lot of time on page 66 and 67 of the big book, which talks about resentment and what I do with resentment. I've also had to spend a lot of time on page 68, which talks about fear and what to do um, with fear. Because, again, it hasn't all been easy. And I got – I um, I prayed for two years before becoming, deciding to try to become pregnant. And um, and God told me yes, and I got pregnant. I'm actually looking at the time, and I need to wrap up. But I got pregnant easily. Parenting has not been easy. Marriage has not been easy. I've been recovered for 30 years, and I thought someone with 30 years would be happy, joyous, and free all the time. And that's that's not my particular experience. Um, and the the fourth dimension I thought would be nirvana, um, and it's it's not. But what my fourth dimension is 
is that I am now living life on life's terms without food and with acceptance. I'm accepting life on life's terms without picking up the food. And it is a trudge as well as happy, joyous, and free. It's both. Um, And there are many moments of happy, joyous, and free and a deepness of that happy, joyous, and free, but it's also difficult Um, But this message of depth and weight, the 12 steps, has enabled me to to stick it out and to to stay abstinent through this trudge um, and through this journey and and get to the other side of difficulty so I can experience the gifts. So thank you for letting me share. And I'm sorry, I just saw the time that I, I feel like I went way over. Thank you. Catherine, thank you so much for your inspiring and remarkable story of transformation as a result of these 12 steps in a relationship with power. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself. The share ID number for today's presentation, 15,205. That's 15205. Catherine's contact information will be given out at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And we have time for a few questions, so press star 1 to unmute to offer your name, please, and first letter of your last name as well. Lisa B. Mary Lee and Eugene Oregon. Mary Lee. And I'll take one more. Lorraine M. And Lorraine. Okay. Let's start with Lisa B, please, with your question. Catherine, thank you so much for your share. That was amazing. Um, my question for you, I don't mean to be so, I don't know, um, simple, but my question is, can you explain what it means to eat to overcome the phenomenon of craving? Um, well, I guess for me it has meant First, I had to eliminate foods that were going to set up that craving. Um, And by eliminating those, I feel like the craving is not set up. So I I no longer have that craving for more food. Um, It used to be at the end of a meal, I I like wanted more. I, I kind of wanted to dig for more. And I don't feel that now. I don't, I don't crave extra food um i'm i'm done when i'm done and i'm not thinking about food all the time and and being tempted and fighting um should i you know am i going to eat it or not i just i don't crave it um and again i think i had to figure out what the ingredients were that set up my craving i think for everyone that can be different for alcoholics it's clearly alcohol for compulsive eaters, for some people, you know, it might be sugar. For some people, it might be wheat. Everyone has their own, their own, I don't know, way to find um, of what's going to eliminate that craving. But it means getting rid of it, not eating it, and then that craving is gone. I hope Thank that you, answered Lisa. your question. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa B. Mary Lee R. Your turn. 
Oh, good morning, and thank you so much for your willingness to share your experience, strength, and your hope. Um, I can relate to the to the loneliness and the childhood things that you mentioned and boarding school. What do you do when that loneliness do? You, does that loneliness ever seep in? And what do you do? Um, what do you personally do when that happens? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So, yes, that loneliness comes up. Um, I don't. I don't think that the depth of that loneliness is the same ever anymore. And and part of that, I think, I used to feel like if I disappeared from the face of the earth, who would notice? Like I could be gone for a few days and no one would notice. And now I know that's not true just because my sponsor and my sponsees would notice. Um, So I don't feel, I no longer feel totally alone. I know that I have a higher power and I know that I have this program and people that I can reach out to. But yes, I get lonely. I went on vacation last week and I felt lonely with my family at times because they didn't want to do anything at times that I wanted to do do things. Um, So what do I do? I... um, try to pray and meditate to keep centered. Um, I, if I feel lonely, I, I reach out. I use the telephone a whole lot. Um, sometimes I'll reach out and talk about my loneliness. Sometimes I'll reach out and see who I can help. You know, who can I be of service to to get outside of myself? Um, I might write about it. I, I might go do something nice for myself. Um, or I might go, if no one wants to you know, I don't know, go play on the beach with me, I might just go do it myself or try to find a friend to do it. So, so there's a lot of different ways that I handle it, but I, I, I don't ever think about eating food. That, that's not going to help it. But there's all these other things that can. And I, you know, I take it to God and, and, I think I hoped someday I would never feel that loneliness at all, but I don't know if that'll ever happen. I, I, I think that it's just part of being a human being. Um, yeah, and, and I need to grow up and accept that and not eat because of it. Thank you, Mary Lee R., for your question. Lorraine N., star one, tiny. Good morning. I just want to thank you so much for your your honest, heartfelt share. I related to so much of it, um, um, especially, you know, your difficulty and um, your honesty about being married and having children. I totally relate. Um, and I did not hear the beginning of your sh- your share, so I'm looking forward to going back and listening to that. And really, I just wanted to say thank you because what I heard was so um, relevant to um, trudging my road of happy destiny. And it is a trudge. This world is not an easy place to live. We don't hit nirvana once we get to step 12. You know, life is life. And um, so thank you for your honesty, and I'll pass. Thanks. You're so welcome. Thank you, Lorraine. Anyone else with questions today? We can take a few more. 
Hi, Sophie Z. Hi. Stephanie. Stephanie. Sandy B in Virginia. Sandy B. Who is the Sophie first Z. person that I... Okay. Sophie, Sophie B. B. Sophie B. Okay, excellent. Okay. Sophie B, go ahead with your question, please. Hi, thank you. Um, it's Sophie Z in Montreal, Canada. Um, thank you so much for your amazing share. Um, my question was, and forgive me if I'm not uh, terming it properly, but you said something about how you incorporate in your family um, something about like, like the 10th step and how you like work that in your family life as well. Um, not specifically about the step train, but about how you work that in your family dynamic. I think, I don't know if I'm correct, but you were saying that with your children and with your family. Thanks. Just wanted to know more about that. Yeah, sure. Um, I want to laugh because <laughs> I just, I make lots of mistakes. Um, and in my parenting and in, in my being a, a wife, um, so I think what I mean is just that I openly will listen and hear when I've done something, you know, done something wrong and I'll say, you know, you're right. And, and with, with my kids and my husband, I'll, I'll say, you know, this, this is my part. I'm sorry. This, this is my, I'll, I'll very clearly say, this is my part and I'm sorry about this. Um, and it's just sort of part of our way of life and communicating um, is being able to do that. And I know I grew up, I don't ever remember my mom saying she was sorry or wrong about anything. Um, so I, I feel really good that I'm able to do that with, with my kids and trying to teach them, you know, when they're, when they're fighting, okay, the other person did do this wrong, but what is your part? Um, so learning how to do that in the hardest place for me um, often to do a 10 step is with my husband. Sometimes it's really easy, but sometimes, oh, I just don't want to say I'm wrong. <laughs> you know. But there's a saying, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? And I would rather be serene and happy. And, and I think admitting when I'm wrong is, is part of that. And then trying to really trying to amend the behavior, not just saying the words, I'm sorry. I hope that answered your question. I mean, I t yeah, I tell my kids I'm wrong and I'm sorry, and, I, and I'll change my mind. You know, I'll make a decision and they'll tell me why they don't like it, and I will be open to revisiting it. Thank you, Sophie, for your question. Stephanie, your turn. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Um, I have a question. In your experience, uh, what would be the difference between that of the spiritual and that of saying fear um, in your in your OA recovery? Um, and how can you know the difference between one or the other? I'm sorry, I didn't quite get that. Was the question? What's the difference between spiritual and fear? 
Well, um, well, I mean, there's that of the spiritual, at least from my experience, there's a spiritual, and then there's that of the disease, if any, if anything. Um, and sometimes, how do you know the difference between one or the other? Not necessarily when it comes to food, but when it comes to one's emotions or what one thinks about. Um. So, um, just trying to make sure I understand. So if I feel fear or certain emotions, whether that is coming from the disease or coming from being spiritual? Um, I, I, well, I guess that's my question. Yes. Um, okay. So I don't completely think I'm understanding um, the difference between being spiritual and being afraid. Um, well, I, I just, I know fear comes up a lot for me, um, and it's usually something around fear of my children, fear of something in the future, um, and I guess, are you asking, how do I know if it's the disease talking, or, yeah, I'm just not quite getting the question, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, um, yeah, um, well, I mean... I guess how do I get? I guess for me, how do I get out of the fear and go into the spiritual? That's oh yeah. Okay, okay. So for that, um, <laughs> I turn to page sixty-eight in the big book, and it talks about dealing with fear. Um, in fact, if you want to call me, I'd be happy to walk you through it step by step. Um, okay. But I I follow what it says in those directions, and I say a prayer, and then I reach out to someone else I can help. And and please call me, and I'd love to I'd love to walk you through that. Thanks so much, Stephanie, for your question. Our final question for today comes from Sandy B. Star one ten mute, Sandy. Hi, thank you. This is Sandy B. in Virginia. Thank you uh, for sharing um, this morning. My question is about the 10th step. And I and my sponsor and uh, throughout the years have done always done my 10th steps the way you explained it by that paragraph. But when sometimes I take 10 steps from other people and they do it like a um, like doing a fourth step, they talk about It'll take one incident and talk about how they were selfish, dishonest, resentful with that one incident. And then they'll say, and that affected what my self-esteem, blah, 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 and my part. Um, I I guess I'm not asking what's the right way or wrong way, but I guess I'm just wondering maybe if you've had experience with that. And I guess, you know, as I'm asking the question, the answer may be we do a 10-step in the way that works for us, I guess. And um, just asking if you have any experience in the other way. Thank you. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, and I would say yes. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's no one right way and wrong way to do a 10th step. And I think to to find what, what works well for you. And yeah, whatever works well for you. And that's me. Now, there may be other people who think there's only one right way to do it, but I I think, you know, that there are different ways to do a 10th step. And I've just found the one that, that works well for me. 
Thank you, Sandy B., for your question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And of course, thank you so much, Catherine, for your beautiful presentation this morning. Miraculous, thorough, and very powerful share this morning, and it's greatly appreciated. We're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you.